0: The following is a presentation from WDEV Radio. Fast-paced. It's like a good two-minute drill. We are just boom, 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 right down the field. Opinionated. If they take the David Price savings and the Mookie Betts savings and pocket the money, it will have been a lie, and the fan base will be furious. To the point. Cam is not that guy. He's not the kind of athlete that works in today's NFL for the most part.
1: It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEV Radio.com.
0: What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas here. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV-AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. 90 minutes of sports talk. We go up until 7 o'clock and plenty to react to and plenty to get to. Reminder to subscribe to the Brady Farkas Show podcast. You guys are doing a great job. We are approaching 20,000 downloads in just four weeks. So we've got a lot of extra things going on that podcast channel as well. So the full show, but this week I also ran the uh, uh, running the gamut on the local college hockey scene. Reed Cashman of Dartmouth was yesterday. Todd Woodcroft of UEM Men's hockey today. Cam Ellsworth, Norwich Men's hockey tomorrow. If you want to interact with the show, you can. You can reach out to me on Twitter at WDEV Radio Brady. I'm looking forward to bringing on former ESPN Radio producer Steve Cerruti, who will join me at 545 with his take on the NBA. He also worked with Ryan Rossillo. UVM grad. So lots of uh, good Rosillo stories out of him. The show is sponsored by the all-new Preston's Kia in Montpelier, home of Lifetime Oil Changes and State Inspections. Preston's Kia family-owned and operated, and they will do whatever it takes to earn and keep your business. The breaking news is that Gordon Hayward has opted out of his Celtics contract, and it's so hard to think about right now what this all means because there's still so much in the air. All we know is is that Hayward has opted out. There are now three things that can happen. He can opt out, or he opted out, and he can he's just a free agent, and he can sign with any other team. He can just be gone, and that's it. He could also sign with the Celtics again. So it's not guaranteed that he's gone. He's just gone at that deal, one year, $34 million. So he could still come back. Or he could sign with Boston, and they could ultimately trade him. So there's still so much that we don't know about what's going on with Gordon Hayward. All we know is he will not play on a one-year $34 million deal. It sounds like he's just going to be gone in one way or the other, and that ultimately he no longer wants to be in Boston. So when I talk to Steve Cerruti about the draft, I'm going to talk about it with him under the assumption that Hayward is not here. But since it's, nothing is truly official, it's, it's hard for me to react and say what it means because all I can really do is respond emotionally. I'm disappointed that it didn't go the way the Celtics, the fans, or Gordon Hayward wanted it to go. And that's really just my base reaction. Gordon Hayward is a good player. Gordon Hayward was a very good player. He was the centerpiece of a Utah Jazz team that battled the Golden State Warriors at the height of their powers. He was supposed to be the marquee free agent acquisition at the time of Brad Stevens' tenure. Now they ultimately then traded for Kyrie Irving and then he gets hurt and then uh, Hayward gets hurt and Tatum develops and all that, but Gordon Hayward went into Boston with an expectation that he was going to be at the center of a potential championship team. And with that he was going to get great money. He was going to get great league-wide recognition. He was playing with his former college coach which was supposed to be a great marriage for him and make him comfortable and really bring out the best in him because there was that familiarity with Stevens. And it was supposed to take the Celtics to new heights in the Eastern Conference, new heights in the Eastern Conference. And while the Celtics still got good and still got really good actually, they did it kind of in spite of Hayward. He helped, right? He was good. He averaged 18 points a game last year. He's part of this. But he, he got paid like he was going to score 26 a game. He got He came in here with the expectation that he was going to be the guy. And, look, it hasn't happened to me, but there are plenty of people out there that have taken jobs thinking it's one thing. And it ends up being another for various reasons, right? Either you get hired and then the guy that hired you or the girl that hired you, the woman that hired you, they leave. And now you're totally up in the air and it's different. Or you get a promotion and it's not quite what you thought it was. Or there's restructuring in the office and now, well, you've got this job, but now someone else has been like, "Go," and you're doing two jobs. A lot of people have gone through that where you take a job thinking it's one thing and it ends up being another. That's what happened to Gordon Hayward. He came here thinking he was going to be the guy, and this was going to solidify him as one of the game's top players. He was coming into the Eastern Conference. He was going to have the Cel- help the Celtics go up against LeBron at the time, and they were going to con- contend for championships, and he was going to be the main reason why. And I don't begrudge players who think that way. I, I, If there's one thing I've learned in the last year, it's that players are motivated by different things. There are players whose career and legacies are defined by championship rings, but that is a very, very small group of players. LeBron is defined by that. Um, Anthony Davis had the bugaboo that he couldn't win in the playoffs, so that's why he had to go do it. Dwayne Wade is defined by their championships. Very few players are defined by their rings. Gordon Hayward won't be defined by his rings. So what makes Gordon Hayward happy? Winning a ring would be nice. But I think Gordon Hayward ultimately really only wants to win a ring if he's one of the main reasons for it. And, again, I don't begrudge him for that. I think a lot of that is human nature. It's truly special when somebody can put the betterment of the team ahead of the betterment of themselves. There's plenty of people, and you know what? I think I'm one of them, that would rather be the guy on a bad team than a bit part on a great team. Okay, When I go to the YMCA to play basketball when life is normal and you can go play, I tell you what, I'd rather be the best player on the bad team than the worst player on the good team. And I think that comes off as selfish, but I think that's human nature. People often want what's best for them. And if Gordon Hayward truly has opted out with the intent of leaving, I don't know where he'll end up, but I bet you he'll end up in a place where they will pay him to be a true guy and he will get the requisite shot attempts and notoriety and local media coverage that come with being the guy. And I think a lot of people want that. And I think a lot of people like that. And if Gordon Hayward goes somewhere else and, doesn't win a championship and if he goes to the Charlotte Hornets and they get to the second round of the playoffs that's a win for them. And he can sit there he can look himself in the mirror and say, I took this franchise to new heights. They got better because of me. I got to score 22 a game again and I got paid well. And I think he's okay with that. And I'm okay with that for him. I feel bad that it didn't end up working out the way he wanted it to in Boston because he came in here into what felt like the perfect situation. Comes to a good city with a history of winning, with a team that pursued him, with a team that wanted him. He chose Boston over Miami, who also really wanted him. Over the glitz and glam of Miami, he chose Boston. It had a superstar at the time in Isaiah Thomas, who we didn't know was was damaged goods yet, but they had Isaiah Thomas. They had good ownership, stable ownership with Danny Ainge. They had his old college head coach in Brad Stevens, a guy who they were a perfect marriage together, and they had an opportunity in his mind to do great things. But then he gets injured. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown emerge. Kyrie kind of sends everything haywire. Then they go get Kemba, and all of a sudden Hayward's back, and he's never really himself. And then as he gets himself, he's kind of another ancillary part. And all of a sudden, you're looking at it where you're the fourth or fifth option. You're being paid like a one but you're the guy everybody looks at as the... They look at Gordon Hayward in Boston like the salary drain on the organization, and that's not a position I think anybody wants to be in. If he goes to the Knicks, or if he goes to the Hornets, or if he goes to some other woe be franchise where he's the guy, I think that's what he wants. Everybody will crush it because they'll say, oh, he's not about winning. I think he wants to win, but I think like most people... He wants to be the reason that a team wins. And it sounds selfish. You know what? It probably is. But most people at their core are selfish. It's truly rare when somebody is altruistic. When somebody can truly say, I'll sit here and just be part of it. That's not it. That's not who Hayward wants to be. And I don't fault him for that. The only thing that I fault or the only thing that I regret is that it didn't work out the way that he wanted. I have a best friend who took a job. More money, more title, more responsibility. Left it in two weeks. Wasn't what he thought. Gordon Hayward, three years in Boston. Wasn't what he thought. I feel bad that that's the case. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Let's get to uh, Tell the Truth Thursday. We do this every single Thursday. I enlist the help of Lucy, the beloved Peanuts character. Now we're really going to get down to business. It's for the best. That Anthony Lamb didn't get drafted yesterday. We all wanted Anthony Lamb to get drafted. Former UVM star. Two-time America East player of the year. We wanted him to get drafted. But that was selfish by us, right? We wanted to say we root for a program that, oh, hey, we root for a program where kids get drafted. We wanted to... Have Let John Becker be able to tell recruits, hey, you can get drafted if you come here. It was all for us to be selfish. We wanted to have program pride and let the program use Anthony Lamb as a recruiting tool from now until forever. That's what we wanted, and it was selfish of us. We were looking out for UVM, not necessarily for Anthony Lamb. If Anthony Lamb gets drafted 58th overall, that's cool for us. And it's a nice night for him, but he's stuck in one place. Now he gets the opportunity to truly find the best situation for him, whatever that situation is. Maybe he gets a look in the G League. Maybe he gets a look at an NBA camp. Maybe he goes overseas and makes more money and plays somewhere else in Europe or in Israel or in China, wherever. But now he gets a chance to do what's best for him, and I'm rooting for him to take advantage of that chance. The thing that I regret most about this situation, though, for him is that I know Anthony Lamb has an NBA dream. And he he wants a chance in the NBA. And maybe he'll get it. But you can't help but wonder how much this whole process for him was impacted by the pandemic. And what I mean is his senior year gets cut short. He doesn't get a nationally televised game on ESPN 2. He doesn't get to turn heads and go for 32 as the Catamounts go dancing again and the fans rush the floor. He doesn't get an NCAA tournament game that's televised on on, on national TV, and he doesn't get a chance to show out against a Power 5 program. He played great as a freshman against Purdue. He played great as a a junior against Florida State. Another game like that could have done wonders for his draft stock. He played great against Virginia last year in the regular season. He hit a game winner against St. John's. Against big-name programs, he had always played well. He didn't get that chance. He didn't get the normal pre-draft workout period, the chance where he could go and turn heads. He's not now. There's not going to be a summer league because of the pandemic, so he's not going to get a chance to play well there and build up his image there. He doesn't even get a normal offseason to develop. If he does latch on with a team, the season starts in one month and three days. He doesn't get the opportunity to to wow people and turn heads because it's like, hey, we got to go. We're not here to just feel things out. Like We're going in a month and three days. You're needing more ready-made prospects. And I don't know that Anthony Lamb is that. So him not getting drafted is best for him probably. Because if he just got drafted 58th, then we get to say we rooted for a team that had a draft pick. We get to say we were happy, and we get to use it as UVM fans as a recruiting tool. He's stuck. Now he can sign for whatever money in whatever place. Here, abroad, overseas, G League, Whatever he gets an opportunity to go where is best for him, and ultimately that's what should make us happy. But I can't help wonder how much the pandemic impacted his opportunity to continue to make a name for himself. Because I'll never forget his ability to take over take over a game. Now I've only been watching Catamount basketball religiously for three years now, four years now, but I'll never forget his ability to take over a game his freshman year against Albany in the conference title game on national TV, what he did against Purdue, what he did against Florida state two games that they were in and almost had a chance to win the NCAA tournament when he wasn't right. When he broke his foot as a sophomore and they lose at the buzzer to UMBC, you felt how different the team was without him there. His impact was always there. And then just how much he grew as a person. He could take over a game and he grew as a person. And so eventually where he could take over a room and, uh, for that, he'll always be one of the most decorated catamounts that there is. So continue to wish him well. Sorry for him that he didn't get drafted, but ultimately, this will end up better. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. I want to bring in Steve Cerruti after the break. Steve Cerruti, former ESPN radio producer, NBA expert, used to be a producer for Ryan Rossillo, UVM grad. Gordon Hayward's opted out. I'm going to talk to him as if Gordon Hayward's never coming back. I know it's not official, But we're going to have that discussion. That's all coming next on The Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV.
1: Now it's back to The Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com.
0: Welcome back to the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. NBA draft behind us. It was supposed to be, had the potential to be, a very, very eventful night for the Boston Celtics. All in all, pretty vanilla. couple of players, a couple of trades. Breaking it down with us now, Steve Cerruti, former uh, radio producer at ESPN. Used to work with our guy, UVM grad, Ryan Rosillo, co-host of the Small Talk podcast. He's also done work with former Celtic, Brian Scalabrini. Steve, how are you? I'm doing good, Brady. What's going on? Thanks for having me on. Well, I appreciate you joining us. Um, let's start with the basic question first. It was supposed to be an epic trade night for Trader Danny and the Celtics. Were you surprised that it didn't materialize that way? A little bit. I mean,
2: there were not a lot of trades in general, which I didn't know if that was necessarily because of the situation, the circumstances. Um, obviously, the draft was unlike really any other draft we've seen in the past. Celtics. You know, a bunch of picks in the first round, you'd imagine that they would have wanted to trade up maybe for somebody. I don't know specifically who they were targeting, but um, just weren't able to do it. And, you know, they end up taking three players, a lot of wing players, some shooting, which is good. I mean, it's always valuable. But um, I I would have to imagine that I don't think Danny necessarily wanted to make all three of those picks in the first round. Um, I'd imagine that he wanted to maybe find some value for that. Wasn't able to do it. I don't I mean, I'm sure I'm sure they're happy with what they got, but I would imagine, you know, they, they probably made some calls into the top 10 to try to figure it out, but they got no bites.
0: I'm so surprised to see them shopping Kemba Walker. And I don't know if it's because they want to free up long term money. I don't know if it's because they're worried about Kemba's knee or they just thought that Drew Holiday was a better player. What do you think of the uh, the idea of trading Kemba? I think that they kind of see, especially you saw this last year with
2: Miami making the finals, like the, the East is sort of wide open. You know, the Bucks are a juggernaut in the regular season. But after that, once you get to the playoffs, I mean, it's kind of been proven so far. Um, and obviously Giannis could disprove this, and he I, I think he will because I think he's that great. But no, there's a question mark about them in the playoffs. And last year, the Celtics, you know, there were probably four or five different teams in the East, maybe even more that can make a claim for going to the finals and Hey, you never know when you get there, you could potentially win it. So I think just them looking to upgrade immediately is something that they would want to do. And, you know, there's, there's the other thing. I mean, I've talked about this a lot of times with, you know, with Rosillo in the past about sort of small guards in the playoffs. Like, do they have success in the playoffs? Mm-hmm. And, you know, guards, when I say small guards, I mean, you know, six feet or under really. And Kemba's kind of around there. I think he's listed at six one, but I mean, I, I, you know, he's, he's <laughs> a smaller guard. He's a defensive liability. You know, I'm not even saying he's a terrible defensive player because he's not, but in the playoffs and matchups, when things slow down like that, you could pick on guys like that come playoff time. And, you know, the interest in Drew Holiday, I think is interesting because Drew's a really good fit for them. You know, you've got Jason Tatum, you've got obviously Jalen Brown. If you've even got Marcus Smart, you've got a lot of ball handlers on that team and, What's Ke- I mean, Kemba's the the ball handler point guard, but he's probably on the pecking order of, of that, especially in crunch time, lower down on that list. So, you know, I, I you know, I understood why they brought him in last. You know, you have the cap space, you know, you you just lost the point guard in Kyrie, you got to bring another point guard in. But I don't know if he's a perfect fit for that team. And I do think Drew, even though he's obviously older um and you'd sort of be pushing all the ships in for now, he I think was a better fit. trying to, you know, get to the finals and potentially win the whole thing right now. So I understand that. I think Chris Paul was another guy who, you know, speaking of small guards, he is really good defensively. So he kind of, you know, bucked the, he kind of is the the guy that disproves that theory. But I think this was, you know, them trying to look at how do we get to the finals now because the East is kind of wide open.
0: You live in New England. I'm sure you've been around the Celtics for years, though. Don't you think there's something to be said for fit in in terms of locker room and culture? Like Kyrie was a bad culture fit in Boston. Kemba was the complete opposite. Don't you think there's something to be said, though, for keeping Kemba around just because he's a good guy in the locker room and he fits with that team and they all gel? I think there's
2: you're, you're definitely on something there. I mean, listen, the, the, the difference between Kemba and Kyrie is like night and day. I mean, yeah. there's nothing. It couldn't be. You, you, you saw it this year. I mean, Kemba's not as good of a player talent-wise as Kyrie is. But the Celtics are a better team because they they rid themselves of kind of this um, quote-unquote cancer in the locker room. That's why I'm interesting to see what's going to happen in Brooklyn with the Nets, especially if they get Harden. I mean, that thing to me is just a powder keg waiting to explode wow. with potentially with Harden three different players who all, depending on which way the wind is blowing, that's that, you know, they could change their feelings in a heartbeat. I mean, this is a guy in obviously all of the Celtics fans know who made a commercial about wanting to stay in Boston and a couple <laughs> months later was like, now nah, I'm out of here. So, th- but the only thing I would, I would push back on that is, I mean, Drew Holiday, as far as like character guys in the league is, is maybe the character guy in the league. And he is probably the best on-ball defensive guard in the league. You can put mm-hmm. him on. I mean, the Celtics could stick him on the other team's best sort of ball handler, even like wing player in a way, and you know take some of the responsibility defensively away from guys like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Although you know, Jay, probably not less Jalen, more more, Jay, more Jason Tatum to concentrate more on the offensive side of the yeah. ball. Whereas you know, Kemba Walker, you're oftentimes having to make up for his for his defensive uh, deficiencies.
0: Steve Cerruti with us here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV AM and FM, WDEV Radio.com. After all the conjecture, we finally got to this point, Gordon Hayward not going to be in Boston for the upcoming season. Um, I like Gordon Hayward. I do feel bad for him and how everything kind of materialized. Are you surprised it ultimately got to this point where he's not going to be in Boston?
2: I am a little bit surprised just because of the Brad Stevens aspect, but then you have to look back at you know everything that has happened to Gordon Hayward since he got there, since he left Utah. Is things have basically gone wrong. I mean, it's yeah. and a lot of it hasn't necessarily been his fault. Things around him, the team sort of growing in different ways, um, him going further and further down, you know, the the pecking order as far as like guys who, you know, you want the ball in their hands and crunch time. Um, I think when he went to Boston, he thought he was going to be the guy or the second guy. He turned into, you know, the fourth or fifth guy. And so, when I look at this in Gordon Hayward leaving, I I think, you know, it it could be a good thing for his career. Obviously, you know, he's probably not going to be playing um, as important minutes as he would have been for the Celtics, but, you know, for him to sort of rebound his career and take it, you know, take this thing back to where it was a couple of years ago when he was in Utah, I think the best thing might be for him to go to a lesser team, get more playing time, get his confidence back and try to become the player that we once saw and who was, you know, let's be honest, an all, an all-star caliber player. He's nowhere near that right now. While he still has value, um, I think you know he could. He looks at this and says, "I could rebuild my image. I could rebuild my confidence somewhere else." And you know, let just you know didn't work out in Boston. It's nobody's fault. But we all, be, you know, both parties basically need to move on.
0: As a Celtics fan, I feel worse today than I, did, than I did this time last week. The Bucks appear to have gotten better with the Drew Holiday move. Everybody's universally praising what Philadelphia did yesterday in the draft and unloading Al Horford's con- contract. Miami people like doesn't feel like the Celtics. Like we kind of had them penciled in for one or two, and now it feels like you throw in Toronto. It's going to be a much more of a dogfight in the Eastern Conference. It is, but, you know, the thing
2: that you guys have and the Celtics have is, you know, you imagine guys like Tatum and Jalen Brown taking another step. I mean, every year those guys have taken massive strides. And at the end of the day, you know, if you're talking a one-two young player combo, I mean, they're as high as – there could be one on the list in the league. I mean, there aren't many other combos I would take of those two guys and just their position versatility and both ends of the floor. So – yeah, they didn't necessarily add anything, I would say, that would push them over the top. But you have to think that their development and just Tatum becoming potentially, you know, in the MVP conversation, at least, you know, a guy that's going to be like the number one on a team that you trust to, you know, best player in a series kind of thing. You have to you have to be excited about that. And, you know, yeah, all right, Milwaukee did improve, but obviously the Bogdan Bogdanovich trade doesn't go yeah. through. So that's a total game changer. I look at the Drew Holiday deal way differently through that lens, because I, I think okay, obviously they gave up w- way too much for Drew Holiday. But if you if you if you take into account, okay, we're we're getting Drew Holiday, we're we're hopefully keeping Giannis, and we're getting Bogdan. That's a, that's a really good starting five. That's a really good thing. They don't have that. They just get Drew. I'm not sure it def- It does make them better, but I'm not sure it solves their problems, especially like playmaking come playoff time. Um, Miami, you know, I was surprised Miami made it last year. I would be surprised if they made it this year. I think that yeah. was kind of like a. Did they get better? Yes. Are, is Tywa Hero gonna get better? Is Duncan Robinson gonna get gonna get better? Probably. But you know, I'm not they're not like a shoe-in by any means to make the finals again. I still think Boston has just a good of a chance to come out of the East as well. And Philadelphia, man, I don't, you know, who knows? I mean, it's funny that Daryl Morey comes in there and basically undoes all the wrongs of the previous regime. He gets <laughs> Al Horford out, he brings shooting in, which they desperately needed. But at the end of the day, I just I don't know if the combo of Simmons and Embiid works. and I, I So for me, I can't say, oh, you know, I, I like Philly right now because I just don't think those two players work together. So I think Boston's in a great spot.
0: All right, good. It makes me feel better to hear that because yesterday I was feeling a little bit on edge when I saw all this praise for Philly coming in. So Steve Steve Cerruti with us here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV AM and FM, Um, We have talked before, but never at this frequency as, you know, I just started here a month ago. You worked at ESPN for a number of years. You worked with our guy, Ryan Rossillo. And uh, I haven't brought Rosillo onto this show yet, but I've talked to him a bunch in the past. you produced for him for a number of years. So um, speaking to the Vermont audience that loves Rosillo, what was it like to work with him day in and day out? Uh,
2: It was great. You know, Ryan is one of the hardest workers that I, you know, I've ever been around. I think he sort of shaped the way that I looked at radio too and the way I looked at like content creation because he's so creative and good and interesting and funny. And he was, you know, a huge, uh, a huge, you know, I guess, you know, influence obviously on most of my career, the way I think about sports, the way I look at the NBA, the way I look at trades. I mean, one of my speaking, like, you know, obviously we're talking about draft night here. Like one of my favorite things for Ryan is, you know, we'd be in the studio prepping for a show or something. And he's got like the, you know, all the draft scout, he's watching like international tape of (laughs) a bunch of different guys. Cause like genuinely the the draft is like Ryan's favorite time of the year. He loves Mm -hmm. the draft and he would put in so much work. And I remember it was a couple of years ago and it was before anybody heard of him but he's sitting there and we're sitting in the studio and he's like, Hey, I'm I'm checking out this player. You know, he's from Lithuania. He's he's seven foot three and he's really low on a lot of these draft boards. Like, I don't know why I love this guy. And I'm like, who is it? And he's like, Oh, it's a guy named Kristaps Porzingis. And it's the first time I'd ever heard his name, anything. And I think it was the year before actually that he ended up getting drafted because it was a way that he could have gotten drafted a year earlier. He ends up not. And, uh, and he so he was he was like literally the first guy I ever heard hmm. mention Christoph Porzingis' name and how high he was on this guy. He's like, I think this guy should go in the lottery. And all of a sudden, draft time comes around and he skyrockets up the boards and ends up going number four overall just before my Orlando Magic. I was I was hoping that he because the Magic had the fifth pick that year and ended up taking Mario Azonia, which I thought it was gonna I thought he actually was gonna be a really good player. Turned out not to be, but I was hoping they drafted Christoph Porzingis just because Russillo was all over it a couple years early.
0: Well, certainly a great guy, and I'm, I'm glad to hear he's he, he's got a reputation as being difficult to be around, but no, um, he's been great. To, he's been great to me, and I know he, I know you love him, so I'm glad now he, he dispelled that.
2: Yeah, he he's particular, and so am I. You know, he he knows what he wants. He knows what's good, and
0: you know he that's what he's in pursuit of. So if the, you know,
2: it's, he's not a, he's he's a great dude. Seriously, he really is.
0: Steve Cerruti, NBA expert, did a podcast with former Celtic Brian Scalabrine, co-host now of the Small Talk podcast, former ESPN radio producer. Steve, man, we appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk to you again down the line. Thank you. Anytime, Brady. Thank you. Ah, thank you, Steve Cerruti, with us here on the Brady Farkas Show. So uh, what we'll do, we'll step aside, we'll get our national update from CBS News. We'll come back here and... Uh, we'll get the uh, we'll get into our Sarudi takeaways that's all next on the Brady Farkas show on WDEV AM and FM and wdevradio.com
1: now it's back to the Brady Farkas show on WDEV AM FM and wdevradio.com
0: All right, welcome back, Brady Farkas show right here, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We'll get to the Cerruti takeaways in a few minutes, but thanks again to Steve Cerruti, former ESPN radio producer uh, who just joined us here, NBA expert, really, really knowledgeable. Before we get to them, interesting quotes today on WEEI. Jeff Goodman, basketball expert, college and pro. He said high-level players, elite players, don't want to play in Boston. Here's his exact quote. Uh, his exact words: "They're not the Lakers. They're not even Miami in the sense that guys want to play down in Miami because of the weather, because of the taxes, all those things. The elite players don't want to play in Boston. They just don't." And I've thought a lot about this over the last couple hours, and I keep coming back to the fact that I completely and wholeheartedly disagree. Players will go wherever. Winning is happening or wherever winning can happen the most easily. AKA who has the most cap space. Okay. Part of the reason why Kawhi went to the Clippers is because they had the cap space to bring in a second max player, Paul George. Yeah, he's from California. Yeah, he's likes he would have rather played in Southern California, but they were already a good team with an established head coach in Doc Rivers, with an ownership group willing to spend owned by Steve Ballmer, and they had the requisite cap space to go bring in Paul George or a player who's making Paul George money. That's why he went to Los Angeles. Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving wanted to go to Brooklyn. Why? Because they had the money. They had max cap space for two max players. They said, look, they're not winning now, but winning can happen there quickly because they have the cap space to bring us both in. Players like to team up, but they like to team up where winning is currently happening or the infrastructure and money are in place for it to happen soon. It's not that they're against Boston. Okay, LeBron went to Miami not just because it's nice and because of the taxes, but because they had a culture of winning. They just won the finals a few years earlier. Dwayne Wade was already there and under contract. Pat Riley was already an executive there. They'd won in the past. They'd won in the recent past. They had a a Hall of Fame executive and a Hall of Fame player. It was easier for LeBron to go to Miami because Wade was already there than it was to bring everybody to Cleveland. And the Hall of Fame executive was there. And they'd already won. It was easier for LeBron to go there. Kevin Durant went to Golden State. Why? Not because Oakland is some beautiful paradise. Not because the Warriors have some great history because they don't. Because winning was already happening there. They'd already established they were a championship contender. That's why he went there. Not because of the city. Not because of this, that, or the other. It was because Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, Steve Kerr, and championship opportunity. That's why he went there. And if those guys had been playing in uh in Detroit or in Chicago or in Memphis, he would have gone there too. Players will go where winning is happening or can happen easily. It's not about it has nothing to do with Boston. Okay. Post Kobe. And pre-LeBron, the best guys the Lakers were getting were Kentavious, Caldwell, Pope, Pope, and Timothy Mozgov. Los Angeles is beautiful. Los Angeles had a lot of things to do. But because Los Angeles was a dumpster fire, post-Kobe, pre-LeBron, they were getting Timothy Mozgov. That's who they were getting. So don't tell me that Boston is undesirable. If Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown continue their ascent and – You have two of the best young players in the NBA. And you have a good head coach in Brad Stevens. And you have an ownership group and a stable front office system with Danny Ainge. Boston will also be desirable. Kemba Walker signed there. Gordon Hayward signed there. Al Horford signed there. I'm sorry you don't think that those are elite players, but they were the elite options at the time. Every year has has a crop of free agents. Those were some of the best free agents in their given year. Kemba Walker was arguably the best free agent available last year, except for Kevin Durant. So you can you can miss me with this idea that players don't want to play in Boston. Okay. Elite free agents aren't signing with the Knicks. Why? Because they're garbage. Because they've been garbage for 20 years. Carmelo was there. Amari Stoudemire was there. They took one run at it where they got a couple of players. Now they get washed-up Derrick Rose, washed-up Joe Kim Noah, washed-up Brandon Jennings. Like These are the guys who have signed with the Knicks in the last five years. They can't attract anybody, and they play in the mecca of basketball in New York City. Players would rather play in Oakland than in New York. If the Pelicans get good with Zion, players will line up to play with Zion before they go play for the Knicks. Players will go where they can win and where there is money available to make winning easier. Players aren't, free agent players aren't rushing to play for the Chicago Bulls right now, an organization with history where Michael Jordan played. Because right now they're not winning. And that's just the way it is. So it's not a Boston thing. It's right now a winning thing. And it's a cap space thing. And the Celtics don't have hardly any cap space right now. And last year when they did, they used it on Kemba Walker and got arguably the best free agent available, not named Kevin Durant. So I think Jeff Goodman there is not only harsh. I just think he's flat out wrong. Players have shown they'll go where winning is available or where winning has already happened. They'll, they'll play in Phoenix. They'll play in – they don't care. Sure, it's nice if it's in a nice weather spot where they can hang out on the beach. That's nice. That's, everybody would like that. But if you can win in Charlotte or you can have a dynasty in Oakland or you can win in Phoenix or Oklahoma City or Detroit, they'll go anywhere where winning and money are available. It's not an anti-Boston thing. I mean, Denver, Boston, and Dallas are all on the precipice of being really good NBA teams. Dallas has been good before, and players wanted to go there. Play with Dirk. Play for Mark Cuban. Rick Carlisle. But Denver, Boston, and Dallas, they're kind of on that next come-up group. If they end up winning, trust me, they'll end up with great free agents too. So uh, I think Goodman categorically wrong. So you can get me on Twitter if you want to uh, comment on that, either for or against, at WDEV Radio Brady. It is the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEV WDEVradio.com. So we just spoke with Steve Cerruti. We've got our takeaways here, and – he made a very quick comment on the idea that the Celtics were thinking of trading Kemba Walker. So he was talking about trading Kemba would have signaled this.
2: I think this was you know them trying to look at how do we get to the finals now because the East is kind of wide open.
0: I guess this is the one thing I have to give Danny Ainge. If they had traded Kemba Walker in a quote win now move, Saruti's probably right. Ainge is looking to upgrade anywhere and everywhere. And that is a sign that he's never satisfied and that he's constantly looking to get better. And you have to give him credit for that. And you have to, if you're a fan, you have to be happy you have an ownership like that or a front office structure like that, rather than the alternative where everyone is complacent. I would make a horrible GM. I'm way too attached to people and players. I'm way too lenient on situations. I would make a bad GM. Danny Ainge, he's willing to make the tough situations. I have to give him credit for that. And I have to respect that. But I do think, now minus Hayward potentially, and they're going to have to make some upgrade here. If Hayward truly leaves, they're going to have to get something to help fill his spot. And maybe some of their draft picks that they took yesterday, Neesmith and um, uh, Pritchard, the kid they took from Oregon, maybe those guys can help, but they're not going to be Gordon Hayward near one. So if Hayward's gone officially, they've got to get something. But largely, I think they can run it back and still be very, very good. And I know it's not going to be a normal year for the entirety of the season, but if it's semi normal, okay, I mean I think not having the bubble and not having home court or having the bubble and not having home court advantage, I think it really did hurt the Celtics last year. I mean, I think they can be a top team, and if you get some fans in the stands or guys have to travel to come to your building in the playoffs, I mean, if it's more normal in terms of that stuff, I think Boston is a really big player still in the Eastern Conference. But you see Milwaukee's trying to get better, right? They go get Drew Holiday. You see Philly trying to get better, hire Daryl Morey, bring in Doc Rivers. These teams around them are trying to get better. So I have to applaud Danny Ainge for looking at this with a sense of urgency. I I wouldn't have traded Kemba Walker. I like Kemba Walker. I think he fits. But I have to give Ainge credit that as everyone around him is looking to upgrade, he's not satisfied. He's looking to upgrade also. And there's far too many ownership groups that just sit on their hands. And, and Ainge is not that guy. He's always willing to upgrade the roster, even if it looks weird to me or fans on the surface. What I am happy to hear, though, on those Kemba trade rumors, is that Chris Mannix, who knows the Celtics incredibly well, Yahoo Sports, NBC Sports Boston, he's not so sure those rumors were ever true.
2: Yeah, I, look, I, I saw the reports out there. I, I had been told Kemba was not being shopped. Like, okay. I, I don't. I can't speak to other people's reporting, but that would surprise me if Kemba was being shopped. They're they're very high on Kemba Walker in Boston. He had a very good year last year. Obviously, the knee is something you keep an eye on going into next season, but that wouldn't make a lot of sense.
0: See, I love hearing that because it wouldn't make a lot of sense. But because Kemba does fit so well and because he's a good scorer, right, 20 points a game, good passer, willing to defer, good attitude, gets along with the with the fans well enjoys Brad Stevens, willing to learn, good communicator, good leader, good mentor, all of the above make Kemba Walker, to me, an ideal fit for Boston. Like He's like the ideal Celtic to me. The knee is the only thing that I'm concerned about. Um, The the thing that keeps coming back, though, that we hear, and it's really, this is the one, Freddie Coleman said it yesterday, and Saruti said it today, that you wonder about the length in the NBA. Kemba's six foot. As you get into a playoff situation, six-foot becomes kind of a liability on defense, and that's one angle I I continue to not really think about. So if Kemba's going to be a liability on defense, then everybody else has to work harder, and it kind of saps Jalen Brown, it kind of saps Jason Tatum of their ability to focus on the offensive end. Generally, the truly transcendent offensive talent, like Tatum, are able to kind of take the defensive end off. If Kemba's, a, if his height is a liability, if his lack of length is a liability, then Tatum's not being afforded that opportunity. And that would hurt the Celtics. And that's something that I hadn't really thought about. I wanted to uh, get to one more Sarudi takeaway. So he was a, a producer for SVP and Rasilla, one of the great classic radio shows on the sports side all time as far as I'm concerned it was just unbelievable in so many ways but then when that show broke up he was the producer for SVP and for SVP and Rosillo then Rosillo and Cannell, then the Ryan Rosillo show then Will Kane and Rosillo he's been around Rosillo for a long time and Rosillo is a UVM grad and he loves this area and he comes back and he talks about it fondly he talked about working with Rosillo and what it's like
2: uh, it was great. You know, Ryan is one of the hardest workers that I, you know, I've ever been around. I think he's sort of shaped the way that I looked at radio too. And the way I looked at like content creation, because he's so creative and good and interesting and funny. And he was, you know, a huge, uh, a huge, you know, I guess, you know, influence, obviously, on most of my career, the way I think about sports, the way I look at the NBA, the way I look at trades.
0: So, the main part of that I wanted you to hear was when he says that Rosillo is like the hardest worker in the business, and it's true. And Rosillo is great. His skill set is great. His knowledge is great. His work ethic is great. All of that is off the charts, phenomenal. But there's a perception out there, or perception rather, about Rosillo that he's gruff, that he's tough, that he's difficult to get along with, and. I want to tell just a a quick story, and it's something that I haven't said since I've been on the air here, and I've been kind of trying to avoid it, but it's going to come up later in the show today and something else, so I want to um, say this now. The coronavirus pandemic has been really tough on a lot of people, and it was tough on me also. I was Some of you know this. Some of you are just listening to me for the first time, but I was on another frequency up in the Burlington market, and I was there for three and a half years, and as part of some coronavirus restructuring, I lost my job. And that's what allowed it's It's okay. It's all worked out. I wasn't on ice very long. I was able to come here and get what I think is a better job. But the reason why I tell that story is that Rosillo has this perception of him that he's tough and that he's gruff. The day that I got let go, he's, you know, we saw on social media and I was kind of texting him a little bit just told him basically thank you for, you know, all the help you gave me. You came on to my old show a bunch he called me and had a conversation with me for 15 minutes and Ryan Rossillo is a far bigger deal than me works, worked at ESPN for years and now works at the ringer and um, working on developing a television show. He's a big deal in the sports media landscape. And he took it upon himself to call me and talk for 15 minutes. And that was something that I'll never forget. And it's something that I really, really appreciated because you know, even though, We're peers in terms that we're in the same business. We're not peers in that we're not on the same level. He is very high. He is very much above my level. We have met before. I've helped him out with something before. We've talked a bunch before. But, you know, he's way above me in terms of his standing in this business. And the fact that on the worst day of my professional career, he called me and spoke for 15 minutes. I I thought that uh, if you're a UVM fan, who has long liked Rossillo, you are completely justified in everything you like about Rossillo. He's a great talent and he's a great guy. It's the Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEV Radio.com. Uh It is Thursday. We take one more look at the Houston Texans. We get ready for the Patriots game. Know your enemy.
1: It's time for Know Your Enemy.
0: I think the Patriots are going to win this game, by the way. I really do. I feel good about where we're at. I'll give my official prediction tomorrow. But when we think about this game, Patriots can get to 500. I absolutely think that they're going to do it because the Texans are two and seven. They're last in the NFL in run defense. The Patriots are number three in overall rushing offense. Um, Things are just lining up well for the Patriots, but this is also a really good opportunity for the Patriots to show another facet of their game. They can 100%, the Patriots 100% can use this game as an opportunity to get their passing game going. I talked to Seth Payne earlier. And it's, this interview is going to be on the podcast um, feed later today. Seth Payne is a former Texans defensive lineman and a current radio host in Houston we were talking about how bad the Texans are. So I gave you the rush defense numbers are last in the NFL there. He also said they're awful against the pass. They could get close to right. Um, (laughs) And
2: and this is where the run defense really hurts the Texans again, because if the Texans try to load up the box to help their run defense out, and that they have to play a bunch of man defense on the back end, they just simply don't have guys that are capable of playing good man defense in the NFL.
0: So, one of two things is going to happen here. One of two opportunities is going to be presented. If the Texans just play it straight, the Patriots are going to be able to run all over them because everybody runs all over the Texans. And the Patriots will grind out drives, and they will move the ball, and they will finish in the red zone. And if they can finish in the red zone, then they'll ultimately go and win this game. And while I don't think they can really blow anybody out with their, with their style of play, they could get a double-digit win in Houston because they'll just grind the clock, they'll move the football, they'll get first downs, and they'll finish in the red zone. If Houston stacks the box, and if they really try to take away the run, well, then you're going to see one-on-one coverage on the outside with bad defensive backs, and it's an opportunity for Cam to show a part of his game that we haven't seen in the last couple of weeks. I mean, this is a game I'm truly looking for. Not only do I expect the Patriots to win, I expect them to dominate. And amazing how far we've come in three weeks, because three weeks ago, they're looking like a 3-13 and team. Now... We're talking about them getting to 500, getting their running game just solidified as one of the best in the NFL, and getting their pass game going against an inferior opponent and an inferior defense. Deshaun Watson is great. He is special. But he alone is not enough to beat the Patriots. We've seen the Patriots confuse Patrick Mahomes this year. We've seen them beat Derek Carr, who's had a very good season. We've seen them... um, you know, limit Josh Allen, who I still have questions about, but he's looked good the last couple of weeks, except when he played the Patriots. So they've limited Lamar Jackson. I think they're going to win this game, and I'm looking for them to really play a physical nature in the run game, but also get that pass game going. And they're going to need it. I want to see it. Now I have an expectation, right? I'm done trying to make it look pretty. I've said that, but I do want to see it diversify. It doesn't have to look perfect. But I want to see it diversify. I want to see Nikhil Harry with some catches. I want to see Demir Bird with some targets. I want to see Jacoby Myers continue to play well. I don't care if it looks ugly, but it should look controlling. And the Patriots should be able to control this game. So Seth Payne was the guy that I talked to. And uh, the full interview, again, will be available on the Brady Farkas Show podcast feed. I also, I'll have to really go back and think about this. We'll probably talk about it tomorrow my gut tells me the Texans have done way too much trying to replicate the Patriots and it's really hard to replicate a culture in the NFL because no two situations are the same, right? The, the, you know, the Texans ownership is not Robert Kraft, Bill Belichick's not the head coach. They don't have Tom Brady. They don't play in the same division. You got to build something sustainable for yourself and, I see the Texans as trying to be patriots light, trying to be Patriots-South. I mean, the guy running the show, Jack Easterby, former Patriots guy. Bill O'Brien, former head coach, former Patriots guy. Romeo Cornell, interim head coach, former Patriots guy. Like The Patriots imprint seems to be all over the Houston Texans. And that imprint, while you can take elements of New England with you, you can't just try to pick it up and move it somewhere else. And that's what it feels like the Texans have done. It feels like they've spent so much time trying to chase the Patriots that they've kind of lost an identity, or they don't even—I don't even know that they have an identity. They're Deshaun Watson and a bunch of Patriots wannabes, and I don't quite know what they are. Like Patriots, buttoned up and efficient—that's who they are. Pittsburgh, we're not going to take the clown shows. Antonio Brown can be gone. Le'Veon Bell can be gone. We're going to be buttoned up, and we're going to be generally pretty disciplined. High character guys, tough, pretty disciplined. Kansas City's identity, for better or worse, is we will take the problem, children. We will give everybody a chance, and really, there's not much of a limit on guys that we'll take. They got rid of Kareem Hunt, but other than that, we'll bring on Tyreek Hill, we'll stand by him. Travis Kelsey can be provocative, although he's nothing criminal type thing, but he can be provocative, dance, showboat. Yeah, we got a place for you. DeAndre Baker... You were arrested on suspicion of, you know, gun charges this summer. Oh, they've been dropped. Next day, you're with us. Like they, t- they'll take guys like that. Cleveland will take some projects, but they'll also take big swings. These teams kind of have an identity. Who are the Houston Texans? They're just a group of Patriots wannabes, and it hasn't really worked out for them. It's the Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVRadio.com. And we come back. We hear from Flutie. It's time for our daily dose of Doug is the prototype that used to help Cam Newton now hurting Cam Newton. That's next on WDEV.
1: So Brady does a podcast with former Patriots quarterback Doug Flutie. Doug is a lot more famous than Brady. Flutie flushed, throws it down.
0: Caught by Boston College! I don't believe it!
1: Doug is a lot
3: smarter than Brady. So much in football is the guys surrounding you. Your success is
1: dependent on the guys on the field and that team. So let's listen to Doug. It's your daily dose of Doug on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEV Radio.com.
0: Welcome back, Brady Farkas show right here, WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. The new Believe in Patriots podcast came out yesterday. We've got another one coming out uh, tomorrow or Saturday, probably tomorrow though. So uh, Doug Flutie and I do two podcasts a week. So again, they're called the Believe in Patriots podcast, B-L-E-A-V. It's on the Believe Podcast Network. I don't make the names. All the podcasts are Believe in something. So if you think it's corny, wasn't my call, so there you go. Believe in Patriots podcast. It's very good, though. Not even not about me, just Doug is awesome, and he's been great to work with. We, meaning me and Doug, and also we, meaning me and you, the listeners who I interact with, have talked a lot about Cam Newton this year and how he looks and how we want him to play. And I, I told you, and I mean this, I'm done trying to make it look pretty. But as I continue to think about it, Why are we questioning Cam Newton? Why are we questioning his style of play? And I think, I think I finally figured it out. The prototype is now hurting Cam. He doesn't fit into a certain box anymore. Cam used to fit into a box, and we like when our athletes fit into a box, when we can group people together, when we can compare people to each other. And we used to be able to do that with Cam, and I don't really think that we can anymore. What I mean is this. He used to have the prototype in his favor. Big guy, strong arm, power five pedigree, had won a national championship, had won a Heisman. You can place, you can see in him a bunch of other people who have worked in the NFL, came from a power five school, had won a Heisman trophy, had played on the big stage, had a, was a big guy with a strong arm. He was also a trendsetter in that he was big and could move in the way that he could, but largely we could envision Cam Newton looking like player X, Y, and Z in NFL history. Now he's a kind of a trend breaker entirely. Before it was kind of a little wrinkle that he could run. Now he's just a total trend breaker and he doesn't really fit. He doesn't run like Kyler Murray runs, right? He doesn't run with that kind of smoothness. He doesn't run with that kind of speed. He can't play the, quote, little man's game like Kyler Murray does. But he also doesn't play the speed run game like Lamar Jackson does. Lamar Jackson's big and physical, but he runs with breakaway speed. Lamar Jackson looks like a sprinter. Okay, Kyler Murray looks like a ballerina. Lamar Jackson looks like a sprinter. And Cam Newton looks like neither of them. So he doesn't fit the running quarterback mold that we ha- that we want him to. He doesn't look like... Everybody else who runs, Cam doesn't look like. Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray, they run with a grace. Michael Vick, Lamar Jackson, they run with a speed. Cam runs like a Mack truck. It doesn't look like anything else. So then you think, okay, well, what about passing? Well, he's big. He's really big. Just like Just like Josh Allen. But he doesn't have the big arm of Josh Allen. So we can't label him a certain kind of runner. And we can't label him a certain kind of passer. So people are frustrated by that. People are bothered by that. They're wondering, what is he? So I just want to see the results. I just want to see him win. I want to see the Patriots win. But I think the prototype discussion is hurting Cam. And here was Doug Flutie talking about Cam not fitting into a certain box.
3: The problem is Cam 6'6". And you think of the Tom Brady's and the Aaron to stand in the pocket and gun it down the field. Cause I've seen that out of him before. I've seen that arm before. Yeah. All right. He, he, he's not the package that is Kyler Murray, even though Kyler Murray, Lamar Jackson, uh, Deshaun Watson and Cam Newton can all run the same offense because they're running RPO stuff and running the football and throwing these paths. So it's kind of funny. He's, he's this big guy doing what a lot of the little guys do offensively.
0: So there you go. It's largely exactly what I said. I forgot to Sean Watson. You throw him in there too. These smaller, lighter quarterbacks that move around, Cam doesn't look like. These bigger quarterbacks, these big-chested quarterbacks who stand in the pocket, Cam's not really that either. He's not Brady. He's not Rodgers. He doesn't really have – I mean, Josh Allen is his best comparable in that they do have a similar running style, but Allen's arm is now so far and away above Cam's that you can see Allen – has in him a physical talent that Cam just doesn't have right now. Like Cam's not going to line up and throw it 70 yards, which is something that Allen can do. And, and to his credit, the Bills have the weapons on the outside to allow him to do that, and the Patriots don't. So, it's hard to fit Cam in a box, and that is ultimately what bothers people. If Cam is if Cam is here in the future, the Patriots need to put pieces around him, the draft, free agents, trade pieces, whatever. Because when I was talking with Seth Payne, the, the former Texans offensive lineman, I mean, he told it to me, he said it to me straight, he goes, Deshaun Watson is special. He is not good enough to overcome what the Texans have. If Deshaun Watson can't overcome, you know, a dysfunctionalness in Houston, but also some lack, some lack of skill players, then why should I expect Cam Newton to be able to do the same thing? If Cam's here, he's going to need a lot of help. Until then, though, I just want to see him win, and I don't care what it looks like. But I think as people try to figure out what's up with Cam, what's up with Cam, he just doesn't look like anything else. He doesn't play like anything else. This one with Flutie was this was actually a, a serious topic, and we always have a lot of fun, and we always try to make it really educational. This one was actually kind of tough to talk about, and I was interested in Doug's um, experiences here. The Ravens center the other night, and his name escapes me, sort of with an S. He had two bad snaps in the rain, right? The, the Ravens lost 27 yards on bad snaps in the rain. One of them was on a fourth and one, cost them the chance at the first down. One of them was on, cost them significant yards on their comeback attempt drive. It didn't cost them the game, but it certainly didn't help. After the game, their center posted on Twitter that his family was getting nasty messages and threats on social media. I can't make this clear enough. If you are somebody who attacks an athlete or attacks their family on social media because of something the athlete did during the game, you are a loser. That is like the lowest thing that a fan can do is attacking a player's family on social media. It's completely off limits. It's completely out of bounds. And if you do it, you deserve to have your fan card revoked, revoked, and your social media account blocked. As far as I'm concerned, I asked Flutie about. Now he didn't play in the social media age, but he played in the age of drunken, liquored-up fans sitting in the first row. I asked him about fans who attack players and their families. And in
3: my uh, experience, the fans that act that way are the ones that lost a bet. Yeah, I you know the guy that bet more than he probably should have. And is upset. And this guy cost me. He, he did it intentionally. And, it, you, know, you know, what? guys are out there busting it. You have no idea how many hours a week these guys put in. How hard. It, you, as a fan, you know how sick that feeling is when the Patriots go undefeated but lost the Super Bowl. Yeah. The sick feeling of losing a football game. Of You multiply that by 20 and you're starting to approach how the player feels.
0: I understand being upset if your team loses. I understand being upset if you lose a bet, like Doug said. You know, If we invest money and we invest time in something, we want to be rewarded. In the same way that I get upset when, if I go to a movie and I pay 25 bucks, me and Jess go to a movie and it's bad. I'm upset by that. We wasted our money, we wasted our time. I don't email the director. I don't tweet the director and say awful things to him him and his or her family. If I go to a concert and I pay... Fifty bucks, and I buy a couple of drinks. And now I spend a hundred dollars on parking, drinks, food, and the concert's not great. Yeah, I'm upset. I'm bothered. It wasn't worth my investment. I just don't go again. Then I just don't go see that group again. I don't go attack them and their families. If you do that, that's truly like the lowest thing you can ever do as a fan. Is going after a uh, going after a player, and or their family on social media. There's just it's inexcusable. And he's probably right. A lot of it probably is based on money and based on gambling, but it's just such a low thing to do. The only time I've ever even thought to criticize an athlete, and I don't mean like attack or issue threats, but the only time I've really ever called out an athlete is when an athlete seems unprepared to play. If if we find out that a player went 3 for 20 from the floor, but they were out drinking until 4 a.m. the night before – that warrants a call-out. That warrants an upset fan. It still doesn't warrant being attacked, but that's that's the kind of situation when you get on a guy. When you get upset. When you think that they're not prepared. When they're not taking their job seriously. When the guy's out injured and he's supposed to be in rehab and you find him dancing at the club. Then you should be upset. When they don't care. When they don't take it seriously. When they're putting when they're putting themselves above the team, when they're being selfish, that's when you warrant being upset with a guy. But a guy who... Look, I don't know that... I'm honestly forgetting the center's name. I told you to start with an S. Scrupa or something. But the fact that I don't know his name tells me that he's never done anything really wrong. Because if if he was Antonio Brown, I'd know who he was. If the guy doesn't do anything wrong and he's busted his tail, then... He deserves to, you know what? I'm sorry that you lost. You chalk it up to a bad play, but you know what? If the guy's trying and the guy cares, I'm not, who am I to pile on? It's absurd when somebody does. You see death threats to families, you see death threats to athletes. It's absurd. And if you do that, you are a loser. And you're not going to ever change my mind on that because nothing that an athlete does on the field deserves that for his or her family. It's embarrassing, it's ridiculous, it's scary. And it's completely unwarranted, and it's completely unneeded. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. What they're saying is coming up next. Had a chance to talk with UVM hockey coach Todd Woodcroft. I'll give you my takeaways from that conversation, play a little bit of it back for you. That's next on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV.
1: The internet, it's a really weird place. Where'd you hear that? The internet. And you believed it?
3: Yeah. They can't put anything on the internet that isn't true.
1: Where'd you hear that? The
3: internet. The internet. internet.
1: It's time for crazy Twitter takes on the Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEV radio.com.
0: Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I can't believe I forgot crazy Twitter takes in the last segment. I got to throw it in quick here before we get to what they're saying. The people on Twitter who want James Harden on the Celtics, if you're listening to me for the first time, you're going to learn my disdain for the way James Harden plays. Not for James Harden. He's a great scorer, an all-time great scorer. I can't stand watching him play and I can't believe there are actually people out there on social media that want him to play on the Boston Celtics. Number one, he's, you know, you're talking like 45 million dollars. That's too much money as far as I'm concerned. But hey, aside from the money, his style of play is just not fun to watch. He's a ball-stopping player. He's a great scorer, but the ball just sticks in his hand. I mean, when he gets it, it's jab step, jab step pump fake, jab step, jab step shot. Step back shot. Jab step, jab step, jab step, pump fake, dribble, contact, lean in, foul shots. It's not that it's not effective. He is good, of course. But the Celtics' style of offense is best when the ball is whipping around. I will never forget ESPN had this stat a couple years ago when Isaiah Thomas was on the Celtics. So he plays the first two games of the Eastern Conference Finals against the Cavs. They lose. He gets hurt, hurts the hip, doesn't play game three, and all of a sudden there was a stat that said, The Celtics pass the ball a hundred more times with Isaiah Thomas off the floor. And they go and win that game. They win without their best player at the time, just because of the ball whipping around. Kemba can play that way. Tatum can play that way. Brown can play that way. Hayward, if he's back again, if he opts, you know, he opted out, but if he signs again, he can play that way. James Harden can't play that way. He's a ball stopping player. He will stunt the growth of a of a Jason Tatum. He will stunt the growth of a Jalen Brown. And for 50 million dollars a year. Um no. I that's too much cohesion on the Celtics. So I do not need James Harden. I can't believe there are people that want him. All right, now let's get to who's saying what.
1: Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? The passing game was atrocious today. This passing game is in big time trouble. They really said that? The Patriots, they're an average
0: offense. If you cannot be explosive on offense, you cannot hang in the NFL.
1: It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEV Radio.com.
0: All right, Who's Saying What on that Brady Farkas podcast channel page? So the Brady Farkas Show, if you just subscribe to it, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and WDEB Radio.com, you'll hear the show, but I'm also trying to – look, I, I'm just trying to give you guys content. I know there are more great stories out there than we have time to tell, and that's my sole – goal right now is to just give content to you and generate content for you. So I had a chance to talk with Todd Woodcroft, new UVM men's hockey coach, and the season's delayed by a month and they're eligible to play beginning December 18th. I asked him, what are you doing to prepare? You were supposed to play a game this Friday. Now you can't play for a month. What are you doing to prepare? Here's what uh, Todd Woodcroft had to tell me. And, uh, He's just such an impressive guy. I love talking to him. I got a chance to talk to him a few times. Here's what they're doing.
3: Uh, for video, we can use that extra time for scrimmages. So our plan is to scrimmage each other every weekend and treat each Friday and Saturday like their game days. So preparing us for the 18th, 19th that weekend when we do get back to playing – uh the first game we're gonna be playing, we're gonna be prepared for it with no surprises. We're walking in we're we're practicing national anthems, like game mm-hmm. music, everything we're doing so that when we walk into that game, there's nothing that's gonna be foreign to us.
0: I think this is the right thing to do. And again Todd Woodcroft is impressive and I think if you've never heard him speak, you'll walk away from that interview thinking that he's impressive that he's the right guy to lead UVM forward. I know I knew very little about college hockey. I knew nothing about Todd Woodcroft. I've spoken to him three or four times. I do know coaching. I played college sports. I coach college sports. I do know connecting with athletes, and I do know teaching, and he's got it. In the same way that Reed Cashman of Dartmouth, who I talked about yesterday, has got it, Todd Woodcroft has it. This is the right thing to do. It's very, very Belichickian. Practicing the national anthem, practicing the warm-up music. You have to simulate everything. You have to be prepared for everything. And we talk about good habits, and good habits create good teams, and good teams create good programs, and good people create good programs. This stuff that he's talking about creates those good habits. You can't be undisciplined. And then go out. You can't be undisciplined all week in practice and undisciplined in how you handle your studies and undisciplined in how you handle the weight room and then go out and be national championship caliber. He's building from the ground up. The team won two games last year in Hockey East. Two and... I mean, got two and 22, two and 24. Like, they were bad record-wise. I don't know what it's going to look like record-wise this year, but I can tell you that the foundation is being built and that I trust what he is doing in building that foundation. You saw... The level of preparedness in the Patriots game the other night against Baltimore. We heard the story. Bill Belichick has the Patriots practice outside, simulates them playing in the rain because he knew the weather was going to be bad. Ravens were the team that botched two snaps, that looked uncomfortable in the rain. Patriots looked at home because they were prepared for it. They are prepared for every single situation. And Todd Woodcroft is going to get UVM prepared for every single situation. I also think that UVM has hired a classy guy who is a good leader. And and I mentioned when I talked about Rosillo about me losing my job because of the coronavirus before I got here. I said it was going to come back up later, and this is where it comes back up now. Todd Woodcroft got hired in late April, early May, somewhere in there. I talked to him at my previous job, and I talked to him one more time at my previous job. And we had never met in person. We had never video chatted. We had just talked on the phone as far as, as part of two interviews. The day that I got let go because of the coronavirus, Todd Woodcroft sent me a text message. He'd never met me. He didn't know that I was going to take a job that kept me in this a- in this area. He was very likely, at that moment, thought never going to speak to me again. He went out of his way to send me a text message and tell me he was sorry and tell me, hey, for what it's worth in our couple of conversations, I thought you were good. And that meant a lot to me, and especially, again, on that day, the worst day of my professional career, he was one of many people who was there. He didn't need to be, but he just does things the right way. And if he lives it and if he is about it every single day, then it's going to bleed down to his team, and they're going to be about it too. So you're going to have a program that is built on a high-character coach that is then built on high-character recruits, high-character assistant coaches, and high-character players. And then on the ice, you're going to have a team that's incredibly buttoned up, that's incredibly disciplined, and that is prepared for all situations. I don't know that it's going to translate to a whole bunch of wins this year. If you're 2-24, and and they're not going 24-2 and this year, but they're not going to allow little things to be their undoing this year. Todd Woodcroft will make sure of that, and I trust in that, and I trust in him to be somebody that's going to move UVM hockey forward. I know I knew very little about college hockey until I got to this market. I do know people. I do know coaching. I do know recruiting. I do know athletes. And Todd Woodcroft is good on all of those fronts or relating to people on all of those fronts. Full interview is online again at the Brady Farkas Show podcast page. Uh, Let's get to closing thoughts here. Uh, Let's see. Closing thoughts. Where's that music, guys? Oh, here we go. Closing thoughts. Closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. So... UVM announced yesterday that both the men and women's basketball teams have paused team activities because there was a positive coronavirus test in each program. We don't know who it was, and it doesn't matter. I just hope whoever the affected party is, is okay. Ultimately, I hope that their health is okay. It leads me to wonder, though. They announced this on Wednesday. Sunday is when they announced that they were delaying the return to game competition by a month. Did they know that this was coming? And did that prompt the shutdown? Because a lot of my feelings would have been changed if I had if, if that was the case. If if they said if they had said on Sunday, "Hey, we've got a positive test pending. We're shutting it down." I wouldn't have I wouldn't have given probably batted an eye at it. Maybe a month would have been a little too long for me, but I wouldn't have batted my eye if they were shut down for 2 weeks and then Look, if they shut down for two weeks, at least men's basketball wouldn't have been able to play in Mohegan Sun anyways, wouldn't have been able to play Siena anyways, and then probably would have wanted those extra eight, nine days until December 18th to get just to practice and scrimmage each other and get back into it and get ready. It's not like you're going to be paused for two weeks and then come out the next day and play a meaningful game. So if they paused for two weeks and then wanted to take the next 10 days, two weeks to get ready for December 18th and conference play, that would have made total sense to me. I don't know how it would have affected hockey, but maybe they're worried about cross-contamination. Maybe they're worried about athletes in shared spaces. I don't know. But if they knew about that positive coronavirus test in each of the men and women's basketball programs on Sunday when they made that announcement and then just didn't tell us, I wish they had told us. It's not their business to give us individual people's medical records, but if they said we're doing this in response to a positive test, I think a lot of people would have viewed it differently. I don't know that that was the case. It's very possible they were doing it anyways, and then this just happened as a result of testing. I don't know. And we'll probably never know, but it's interesting the timeline. Sunday they say they're shutting down from game competition for a month, and then Wednesday they announce that there's a positive case in each of those programs. I don't know if one is related to the other, but there's a chance that it is and a chance that it reshapes people's opinion. The Brady Farkas Show is brought to you by the all-new Preston's Kia in Montpelier, home of Lifetime Oil Changes and State Inspections. Preston's Kia, family-owned and operated, and they will do whatever it takes to earn and keep your business. Thanks to Steve Cerruti for dropping by. Full show podcast available, a bunch of extra interviews there as well, getting you ready for uh, Patriots-Texans with Seth Payne, Todd Woodcroft of UVM Men's Hockey, and uh, we are back at it tomorrow. Tomorrow, a football Friday. As we get you ready for Patriots, Texans, talk about a bunch of other games as well. See you later, everybody, on WDEV. Dinner Jazz is next.